Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, thank you again so much for joining us today. Uh, I am extremely honored to be um, sitting down with Terry Solomon, former Marine, uh, philanthropist. Uh, he just published uh, a book called What We Give from Marine to, to Philanthropist, a memoir. Um, this was such a, uh, so I, I really just appreciate again, your time, um, as busy as you are to sit down with us and sort of share some of your story uh, with us. So thank you, sir, so much for being with us. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, your story is so um, interesting because you uh, are currently in Vancouver. Is that correct? It is, yes. And um, you are a Canadian. I am a Canadian, yes. And so... Uh, as a um, U.S. Marine, uh, but yet a Canadian. Um, I'm just so excited to hear uh, your story. I know in your book, you chronicle some of the stuff, but for our listeners, if you could just sort of talk about um, you know, where that impetus came from and sort of the literal journey uh, to the yellow footprints for you. Thank you. I mean, I it basically... The story revolves around as a very young man that I was, uh, actually uh, 19 years old, and and uh, uh, somehow I um, I had a motorcycle, so I was able to drive it occasionally, and that's how I met the uh, uh, Marine Corps recruiter at uh, Plattsburgh, New York. It's on the Canadian border, as everybody who's an Easterner knows, um, and. In that process, it was a wonderful opportunity to ride this magical road, and uh, I wasn't really going anywhere in high school, um, uh, much to my parents, or particularly my father's chagrin. Um, so for some, you know, I managed to get a hold of the Marine Corps recruiter who uh, really um, inspired me. Uh, He's a very good salesman. Recruiters are good salesmen, of course. That's that's why that's why they're recruiters. But uh, uh, and it's not just the American brains. It's uh, you know Canadian armed forces do the same thing. But I think that uh, he was very good at articulating um, the benefits of, of joining the Marine Corps. And I was looking for something new to do with my life. I wasn't going nowhere like a lot of teenagers and. Um, and and I felt that, um, and I went there and I looked in the background and I saw this picture, it said Commander in Chief US Armed Forces and something like that. And it was a picture of John F. Kennedy. And I thought to myself, wow, what an attractive uh, man who's, you know, the President of the United States. And, and it, was, it always stands right behind the recruiter's desk as I remember anyway. Um, uh, and and so um, I was inspired by him, and I I had read the book Battle Cry, Leon Aris's one of his first novels about uh, uh, the sixth and fifth Marines, of course, of which I was part of once. Um, and uh, so and you know he, he did a good job of telling me that which is true that Marines served on every major ship in the United States Navy. Um, and uh, every every major uh, embassy or uh, you know a diplomatic uh, mission abroad, 
and so the opportunity to travel and to um, and to uh, meet people. I've always liked to travel, to meet people. I hadn't traveled at that point in my life, um, except with my parents and not, not very frequently because there were six of us and we didn't have much money to travel. And so, uh, you know, they, they were very good at uh, articulating some of the duty stations, of course, which most Marines don't get to go to, but, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, like Bermuda and Paris, France and Rome and so on. But, but the good thing is, he, you know, he, he painted a picture of a life that I had not experienced and couldn't afford. So um, over the months, the summer months, uh, you know, I, I had very little exposure to, um, uh, to the United States. Um, I, although um, I did have, and I didn't mention this in the book, which was a, a pivotal force in me talking to this recorder. I had an uncle who worked for the US Postal Service in Boston. Um, and he used to come up to Montreal to visit my mother, uh, which was his, uh, his uh, sister. Uh, and we got the opportunity to, to talk to him a little bit about the United States. But the interesting thing about him is that he was a veteran. And every Veterans Day and uh, Remembrance Day up here, I uh, take out his Purple Heart that he gave me. That's the only gift that I ever recall having from him. He had a German Luger that he took from a German officer. Uh, he gave that to his son and he gave me the Purple Heart, which to me was more meaningful than the, than the, than the Luger. So because I had this connection with him, which is not in the book, and I got to see um, uh, the last times Ted Williams ever played for the Boston Red Sox by visiting him. <laughs> Uh, which was uh, <laughs> which was the year before I joined the uh, uh, the Marine Corps, um, and to sit on you know on the third base line, uh, and you know see Williams who's uh, come to bat and so forth, was a magical moment. So I had a real affinity and love to this uncle of mine who was you know a pretty humble man. Um, and the other neat thing about him, every year he bought a new American car. It had to be American car. And he drives that up to Montreal. And so I had this fond memory of him. And then he had this great, he didn't talk much about the war. He was wounded, obviously. But that Purple Heart has been with me for all these years. Um, so, um, so there was a connection. And then that's really not in the book. But it's, you know, you can't remember everything. But that's uh, that's how I as I made the decision. My mother was opposed to it, um, as they are wont to do. <laughs> yes, like most mothers do. Most mothers really don't like to talk about war and send their son off to war. Uh, but uh, that's how it happened, and uh, um, and you know, it's just I. I would clear my head and talk to him, and he was very good at, uh, you know, and of, um, as I said, uh, being accommodating. Um, you know, we I'd met the physical and mental uh, condition to join the Marines. He, he, uh, you know, he he made sure that I did that, and then I sort of waited, and we kept talking back and forth. And it was, it's funny because it's the days before cell phones, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so so you'd have to call them on the. But you know, uh, Marine Corps recruiter is quite accessible, and uh, oh, yeah. it was a small 
<laughs> you know. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's how I got to meet him and and talk to him, and uh, it, it it opened up a life experience for me that, you know, it, of course there are fears. You're going to a foreign country, even though it was a border country and a friendly country to Canada, of course. Uh, you know, a one-way ticket to Paris Island is not most people's idea of fun. <laughs> not the summer destination that people think about when they think about summer vacation. No, you know, and I heard about the Ribbon Creek incident, of course, um, which was a tragedy in its own light. But, uh, but you know, things happen. Uh, and, uh, and I was a young man. I didn't really... Of course, it concerned me, but but um, uh, you know, I looked upon. You know, Paris Island had been there for I don't know since 1910 or what a long period of time, and so many Marines had graduated from there, and um, and you know, so I had fear of what had happened or what was going to happen, and you know, um, and and uh, so I I made the leap. As Kierkegaard said, a leap of faith. You know, I said, I'm just going to do this. And when I got on this plane going to Beaufort, South Carolina, this one-way ticket's kind of unnerving as well. Um, uh, these young flight attendants said, well, you know, where are you going? And I said, Paris Island. I said, well, you'll be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it wasn't the most uh, uh, inviting uh, time. But, but um, you know, it... it I persevered and like most thousands of other Marines had gone that route. Um, that's how I ended up there. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned um, earlier about uh, experiences, how you, 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 there are things that you hadn't experienced. And I think that's definitely one of the themes that seems to permeate through your book is that this um, sort of internal desire, this um, almost uh, unconscious pull towards life experience and travel and all these things. Um, when you think about um, your life now, uh, and if maybe you could talk a little bit about these vast experiences that you've had uh, in uniform and then in particular outside of uniform, um, you know, if you could just give us a little bit about, you know, sort of where you are um, and uh, some of these experiences you've had and sort of this this pull that you've had, this fire inside of you to continue to um, expand your horizons, really, uh, literally and figuratively. You know, I think it, it's many people gave back to me and and uh, and I didn't really look at it that way until years later. But, you know, I, I use the example of in my book of General Walt. Um, you know, as everybody knows, most documents in the Marine Corps are signed by lower level officers. Uh, that's the way it is. And, uh, but when I went to Vietnam, I wrote General Walt a letter and somebody helped me do this, one of my fellow Marines. And I said, if I make it out of here alive, not in a pine box, I'd like to go back to Honolulu where my wife is. Of course, those kind of letters, you know, go into a black hole uh, and you never expect to hear from anybody again. <laughs> even then, even then. But 
a few months before I was rotating, I I, I see this sheep coming up in the with a general's uh, flag on it, and um, and he said, "Are you Sergeant Terry Salmon?" And it's a driver. I said, "Yes." He said, "Just from the commanding general." And I thought, "Why is the commanding general send me anything? I forgot about the letter." Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was a bit nervous. I thought maybe maybe there's some a punishment coming here or something. Um, mm -hmm. So I opened it up and it said, uh, report to Marine Barracks Pearl Harbor. And actually you can see a picture of it here. If you, uh, oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. it's actually signed by General Walt himself, his own handwriting. Wow. And said report, it said report to Marine Barracks Pearl Harbor and it says uh, Major General Walt, you, Lewis Walt uh, commanding US Marine Corps. Yeah. You know, so to 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 think about that incident in the context of your one Marine in a combat zone, uh, he must have kept it by his desk or somehow, or his aide must have told him. But but the fact that he responded um, and responded in a way that so my whole life since that time has been gradual. One get an education. I'm an investment banker by training today. I'm a philanthropist by desire. <laughs> I mean, I don't run around saying I'm an investment banker. I, I'd like to say I'm more of a philanthropist, but I like doing both, of course. But you got to be a banker to get the money to be a philanthropist because part of philanthropy is giving uh, monetary. It's not, it's not the only way. It's not the only way, but it's important. So, um, you know, so in the 90s, I got involved with a major hospital here. Um, mostly, and the thing that really got to me was one, it was a Catholic hospital, never raised money. Because in those days, you know, like a lot of places, Catholic institutions were considered a little bit more suspicious. So they didn't get the same funding that others did. It was just the way it was. But they had an AIDS epidemic going on here. So I don't know if you've heard the song Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen, but oh, I encourage yeah. That's what I. That's what he was talking about. Was the life that people were living here during the uh, during the nineties. Uh, uh, so it gave me a chance to re give back by devoting. But it ended up to be eight years of my life, um, helping, you know, AIDS patients, and at a time when when. You know, the hospital is called St. Paul's Hospital. It's one of Canada's largest, and it's the world's one of the leading center for AIDS research in the world, actually. And the man who was the guy I supported at that time and raised the money to support his chair at the University of British Columbia was a uh, was an AIDS doctor. And had we not raised that money, uh, he would have moved on to the United States or somewhere else where they paid him more. So now it's a center for excellence. But the point is, the ambulances would come to this to other hospitals and they'd send them to St. Paul's. They said, we don't know how to do it. And this, the inference was, it's a gay man's disease. It's really, mm -hmm. not, it's really not something we should get involved with. So I had a couple of Roman Catholic sisters who ran the place in those days, and they used to live in the hospital. They don't anymore, but um, they, they, would, they embraced it. 
and they embraced helping these patients. So, you know, going back all the way to Vietnam and thinking about all the things that we could have done to make to, to, that we did to make things better and this this philanthropy that I was doing years later was I had to be inspired by my experience in the Marine Corps um, and what I was taught of you know of course the practical side of it how do you run a, a charities how do you run a business what what do you have to put in place to make that happen so we we raised a lot of money and uh, and we helped these age patients. And so there was a billionaire, he's now a billionaire, he came in and saw this wife finance a palliative care unit. And as everybody knows, palliative care is a place where people go before they die. Um, and so these were age patients. So we allowed them to, uh, uh, to, have, um, uh, to have their dog, to have their music, to have their cat. Uh, it was basically an apartment in a hospital, in one wing of a hospital. People could come and go. Um, and so I asked this man who'd be a very famous guy, uh, a fellow who's known by Americans as well, uh, Jimmy Patterson, to donate at the time uh, 600, well, he ended up donating $600,000. But he said to me, well, it's empty. I said, Jimmy, it's empty now, but I said, we're gonna build this out to make it a place for these people to spend their last days of their life. So going from what Bruce Springsteen talked about, how difficult it was when you're walking the streets of Philadelphia, it was the same thing here. Um, uh, not much different. Uh, and so, you know, that, that kind of work that I did uh, was it, when the fellow board members say we shouldn't be doing this, it's a gay man's disease, I persevere. And, and I remember the same thing in the Marine Corps. Of course, it was illegal to be gay. But, you know, when I, as I say in my book, when I found, when I suspected they were having a, a, a homosexual relationship, I would say, you know what? Um, I, I would just encourage you to not do it here because this is it's not going to serve you well and you know you're a marine you got to do these obligations and he said whether you like them or not so i i'd give him you know i give him my i didn't want to i didn't want to report them i didn't want to charge them make sure they were charged so i said the best way to avoid that is not to do anything that will cause me to do that mm -hmm. so um that kind of thinking enabled me, and a part of it was my parents, part of it was the Marine Corps too, because Marine Corps, you know, uh, were very, very helpful in terms of, NCOs had a lot of power. I've always believed the backbone of the Marine Corps is the NCO. So they, you know, they had a lot of power and they could do things right and they could make things harmful for you or difficult. Um, and so, that thinking helped me a lot in, in raising money for this hospital. And so when I received the Order of Canada, I mean, that's one of the things they focused on. Mm -hmm. This this um, this hospital that I spent eight years of my life and actually more. So that's how I got into philanthropy. And then after I did that, then the Vancouver Public Library, which is as old as Vancouver itself, 
um, asked me to uh, become involved of, of, the, of the library. And then I thought, you know, what better place to um, to do something else? Because here, people walk into the library every morning, 10 o'clock, from all walks of life. Some are rich, some are poor, some are uh, well-educated, some are not, some are homeless, some are gays, whatever. It's just a whole spectrum of people. And if you can help somebody with that kind of infrastructure work, then you, you can achieve something. And, and so, so once, you know, those, those are the two major things that I got involved in, in those, in the period of nineties. And, um, it sort of shaped me who I am really, to be honest. So I had the Marine Corps, which was a solid footing. I used what I learned in the Marine Corps to, to move it into philanthropy, not, thinking that, that I was going to do that, but that's what happened. And, and was it um, was it these experiences that were so foundational for you? Was that sort of the um, was that the genesis of the book? Is that uh, that that sort of that desire to share uh, your experience? Yes, I mean, the book is a was a project of you're 80 years old. How many years do you have left? <laughs> yeah. And so um, you make mistakes. You've done some good things. Why not try to write it down? So if anything else, maybe my grandchildren will read it. By the way, they haven't done it yet. But it's hard to get a 13-year-old to read a book like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so it's... Uh, it's Maybe I can put something on paper that'll help somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the process is, I mean, your life uh, is just so rich with experience. What was sort of your, um, what were sort of the ideas of coming in? The book as it's written um, is a very straightforward chronological narrative um, chronicling your life. Uh, what decisions did you make going into it uh, as to how you're going to approach the book? Or did it just sort of start small and then grow uh, into a full-on memoir? It started with just a few stories I talked to you about. And I said, well, what can I say that were... And the General Walt story and some of the other ones, um, the age story... There's little bits of stories. And I said, well, and then my editor who um, uh, said, well, I think yeah, I was just talking to her actually. Um, uh, she said, well, now we have to put together like a, a some chapters here, like a full circle, the beginning to the end. Where we're gonna so she was happy with the chronological and I was too. And I had some letters from the Marine Corps um, that my wife, uh, first wife had, and before she died, she handed them to me and she said, do something with these. So that, that was a, a real uh, motivational thing. And I, and then COVID happened. Mm. Um, and uh, I couldn't see my grandchildren because of they were living at a different address. 
and you know that was that was the rules in most in most places in the world in North America yeah. for sure, and so um, I just decided to um, to write. It was also giving me peace of mind because um, the characters in the book. You know, it's a positive book in many ways. So the people I talked about are not people who hurt me, for the most part, but people who help me. You know, so uh, because I'm, you know, I'm I'm an outgoing person. I mean, my wife could do very well in COVID because she doesn't need to talk to a lot of people. But I'm different, so for me it was um, it was a challenge, like it was for many of us. And I didn't grow up in the, in the environment where you work from home. I mean, in my environment, nobody worked from home. Right, right. In the Marine Corps, you certainly don't work from home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> Almost all the hardest. Usually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's so that's how it all came out. Yeah, the, these. Um, these uh, sort of COVID projects, it's an interesting dynamic and um, how it is almost, it seems there's, so, there's such a resonance with this idea of um, introspection as we were all, you know, sheltered in place and then um, sort of really unpacking a lot of the stuff that we didn't have time to really come to grips with. But now, like you said, we're stuck. So uh, I think it, there's a, almost a level of catharsis, it seems like, for a lot of uh, people in, you know, whether it's in bread making, which became wildly popular yes. during writing books. Um, but yeah, you definitely can feel um, that the, again, like the theme of experience and of drive uh, and then obviously leading to um, this need to help. I think those all are sort of, in a lot of ways, are like almost COVID themes for for the, those of us who made it out. So, um, but talking about themes, um, one of the things that you've mentioned already a few times uh, in the podcast is this idea of team. Um, and obviously the Marine Corps is huge on team. Uh, for combat veterans such as yourself, it's absolutely critical. Um, uh, but then as you look at your other endeavors throughout your life, there is a sense of like this real camaraderie among whether it's uh, you know fellow Marines or if it's uh, foundations uh, through the hospital or if it's you know um, charity raising for the library. Um, do you did you get that sense before you started the book, or was this something that just sort of came out as you're telling your story? No, it, it it had a history to it because investment banking is unfortunately a lot of it's about greed, <laughs> and it's 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 always about who makes money and who makes more and who doesn't. But there's you know there's a a feeling that money's never enough. You need everybody needs more, and so, but charity work, we're just happy to have me there. <laughs> I didn't have to talk to them about their bonus or or lack of it or not enough of it. I I could get away from that and talk to what I call different people, and the Marines is not about bonuses either. So, but in the corporate world is all about getting away from that uh, which was to me 
philanthropy was uplifting. It was really uplifting to see um, to see how little little things, ideas, money, time, whatever, can actually makes the world a better place or the institution or the, the recipients of, you know, of it a better place. And, and, and that the book itself, you know, when people have written me so many people, veterans as well, um, saying, you know, it's so inspirational to give back, to want to give back. How can I help? Um, so it was a different experience much different than the corporate world that um, gave me a respite from the from the from the world that I was in uh, to one that I was learning something about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think as you've mentioned before, the Marine Corps really almost from day one um, starts really instilling. This idea of sacrifice, leadership is is sacrifice. Um, you mentioned in your book too that you know one of the uh, paths that you could have gone down was uh, as Anglican priest. Um, so you know sacrificial love, obviously huge um, in, in all of these endeavors. And so uh, you know I, I I think that it's really it really resonates uh, as you read your book um, how it seems like almost from an early age. Uh, this idea of uh, being, not only being part of a team, but then making the world around that team a better place. Uh, it really uh, is, is very engaging. Um, but along those lines, uh, you, you've worked extremely hard, obviously. Um, nothing has uh, really come easy to you. Um, but yet, you always seem to have you know a lot of different pokers in the fire. Um, what has sort of motivated you. I know you talked that philanthropy is very uh, fulfilling and uplifting. Is that the thing that sort of keeps your nose to the grindstone is this idea that like tomorrow will be better? Yes, for sure. I mean, my, my problem and my wife is always trying and my daughters are trying and my assistant trying to get me to do less, not more. Because, um, you know, as, as you get older, I, I have a difficult time saying no to people. <laughs> Just before I talk to you, um, a lady who works for this international organization of doctors that fly around helping people who don't have sight, who have vision problems globally, this is an organization. And it's actually based here uh, in Canada. And she's reaching out to me and saying, can we meet? And so my wife would say, you're doing enough, say no. But I, <laughs> but I, so anyway, we're having, we're having a coffee with her next week. So <laughs> the, the, the bottom line is, but I read about her boss's bio, who actually is my eye doctor. And he, in the, he went to a hundred countries helping out, flying around, helping people with vision problems. He's an ophthalmologist. And I thought to myself, how can I say no to meeting this lady? And how can I say no to my friend who is not, well, my doctor, he's not really, a, he's, he's a friend, but not very, I don't know him very well, but it was just, you know, just a way of, uh, so managing it, 
I got to go back a little bit more to the Marine Corps training. You know, don't try to do too much. Do, do a little bit less, better. And so I'm trying to do that. Uh, yes, I have taken on a lot of projects and, and some of them I continue with, um, but some of them I just, you know, I've, I've nurtured them. They need my advice from time to time, but more, and they need whatever money we give them. So I'm happy with that. Like, um, but you're, to answer your question, um, I think pulling back a little bit is uh, is useful as you get older because you're better able to handle the stress. And so I have to manage that better than I have in the past. Yeah, I, I think as much as the Marine Corps, uh, you know, it, it really sometimes literally beats into your head this idea of brilliance and the basics. It also talks out of both sides of its mouth because then it's like, go, 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 take the hill, take the hill. And so, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the balancing act, is, it, it really, uh, again, it comes to us at a very formative uh, time in our lives. Um, but on that note, you know, when we look at uh, some more themes in your book, um, I think almost allegorically, um, whereas you came up and made, uh, you know, had a lot of success in the mining industry, the book, I think, shows us that we need to sort of mine our own interiority um, and to really embrace the transformation um, and to really seek the meaning in the things that we do. Does that, am I sort of, am I on the right track of what? You, so you are, you are, you're absolutely on the right track. I mean, you know, I talk about the second mountain, you know, in the book that I read. Uh, which, um, you know, at some point you have to, you have to take it to the next level. And that's, that's the challenge that I'm facing today. Um, um, and so, and if I get tired of doing something, I should really move on to something that will inspire me more to take it to the next level. And I think, rather than just maintain the status quo. Sometimes you have to hand the ball off to somebody else uh, and say, you did, you, did, you did good things in getting to where it is and uh, move, on, move on to a new challenge. But the challenge is more about when you've lived three quarters of your life or more than that, uh, what, um, what, what should I do next? And so, um, I've managed through the process from the Marine Corps on and recent years of taking on new initiatives and, and some of them are uplifting and, and like the environment, for example, um, which um, I say in my book, the only thing I've done for the environment is buy my wife electric Volvo. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm joking, but, but my point is I haven't done enough and I've got a friend who's a big environmentalist. So uh, maybe we start a scholarship. Maybe maybe thing to do is start a scholarship uh, on uh, um, uh, environmental studies uh, in some specific area. Like one person I know is uh, researching the rising 
level of the oceans by global warming. Um, and so I, I do support another charity, which uh, um, Swim Drink Fish, which I mentioned is a water charity. It's actually, I think started in part by uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. who I did meet on, on one of these charity events. Um, and, you know, they litigated for pure water. And the reason there was a Marine Corps connection, I wasn't gonna support this charity and I wasn't gonna support him either because I know him very well. I was somewhat suspicious and, and, but he said, you know, you should attend. I said, you know, your uncle was my commander in chief. He said, well, I just want to tell you that this organization was started by Marine Corps veterans who came back um, and uh, were fishing in the Hudson River and there were no fish, it was polluted. So that door was open, that door actually, that introduction to him enabled me and he's that's why i went back to vietnam he said you should go back to vietnam and before that i had no desire to go back to vietnam i have a doctor friend who lives in the united states he's a, a medical doctor for aviation and he was a doctor in the vietnam war he said he's i told him i was going back he says i'm not going back i'm never going back and um, so that was my feeling too. So one door was shut. I shut the door myself. I said, I'm not going back to Vietnam. There's no reason for me to go back to Vietnam. Just let's bury that. But then the part of me said, all these things that you buried, maybe it's not good for you. Mm -hmm. If you can't forgive, you can't move forward. So I felt, you know what? I should go back. And so one door was shut, another one opened because I had more of an open mind. And somebody unbeknown to me, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who I don't know, um, but gave me a few words and is a picture of him and I in the book. He put his arm around my shoulder after I told him this Vietnam story. And then I went back to my office. I took a picture of that uh, General Watts orders because they, the council general here is asking when we last there. So I put the date on that document, which is, <laughs> and they of course were wondering what the hell were you doing there? Of course they knew. Yeah. <laughs> so you see just one, you know, just one little thing that, and it, it, the door opened to something new. Yeah, I'm so interested in this perspective um, because as the, you know, son of a Vietnamese refugee, um, I've been to Vietnam twice, uh, once with my mom and then once with my family, uh, and I will never have, obviously, the perspective of the pre-war Vietnam, but even if I did, um, as a refugee, I'm going to see the world through a certain lens. My mom when we went back, saw it through a different lens. Uh, but the one lens I'll never be able to see it through is through a, a veteran Marine who had who fought in his combat experience. And what, what was that like for you to be back and to, to see, I mean, I, I'll just let you go because I, I can only imagine um, what that was like, uh, you know, just even getting off the plane and stepping foot back after 
almost four decades of being away. You know, the biggest fear of all was actually making the decision to go there. Hmm. You know, and and I had this anxiety and fear and um, just, it was upsetting. Mm -hmm. So I said to my wife, I said, uh, well, let's go to Bangkok first. And I just Googled and said, Bang, Bang, Bangkok is the most exciting city in Asia and something like that. And I said, let's just go to Bangkok. She said, I've been there. She says, it's very busy. I said, yeah, okay. So anyway, we went and, you know, um, so all this time I, I, I decided that I needed three or four days before I actually went to Vietnam uh, before, not because of jet lag, but because I just wanted to ease into it. I really want to ease into it. And so um, uh, we went and, and it was, um, some things were just like, yes, like the time I was there. Other things were not. Like Da Nang was mostly, uh, there was no paved roads in Da Nang when I was there. It was mostly dust, dusty uh, gravel roads. Um, and so, um, but other things remained the same, like women carrying baskets on their heads and um, uh, working the rice fields, the magical, the magical, like art frame of, 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 of art form of a, a rice paddy and how they angle up and angle down and and sort of symmetrically go together and um, those things whereas I remember them and you know what went on in the daytime with people working in rice fields it became totally different at nighttime um, but when I was there, it was just like it was, except for the combat, except for you were looking for Viet Cong and you were engaging in the enemy psychologically or physically, uh, all of which were, you know, much different than what I was witnessing. But the tranquility of the place, we were on a bike tour, bicycle tour. And at one point I got lost in this bicycle, maybe because I was so absorbed and uh, but I ran into uh, like a military guy, uh, a student, and he spoke enough English to get me back to where the other trips, uh, the other people on this bike trip. But um, I managed to explain to him that I was a veteran. That's why I was here. And uh, and they called it there the American War, not 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 the Vietnam War. So. Um, you know, I found that a bit interesting too. So, but what I realized is that it had transformed itself into this incredibly thriving economy um, and, you know, productive nation. And, uh, and yet, not, you know, none of them have the same they're not taught the animosity towards the war because it's not, from what I can gather, not really taught to school children. Or if, if it, it does, they don't know much about it. Mm. So um, 
what became a very fearful experience became sort of uplifting and you know just talking to people and i would say oh, i remember somebody looked like you you were working in this um, restaurant and then the interpreter would say he's thinking about somebody he met here a long time ago and then the girl would understand what i was talking about um so it was it was strange but it was ended up to be a really uplifting experience because it was peaceful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and unlike you know you have to move forward and you know forgive and so on and and they weren't wrapped up in what was happening in the war and i couldn't uh so it was, to me it was um it was a it turned out to be a very positive experience that's awesome so we, 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 we went back another time oh really yeah we went back for another called the indo china experience so we went to laos cambodia and vietnam um you know, when Laos was probably the most bombed place on earth. Um, and, you know, and then I read about Bien Bien Phu and how, and then, oh, here's a big thing. The, the, the war itself, you know, I, I never really understood what, how they were able to, to, to the North Vietnamese and South Korea were able to recapture this whole country and make it one and so i read this little pamphlet that they issued it's a bit propaganda but but it, it it was well done um and how the french were defeated at bia um and it wasn't really a propaganda it was just a historical piece that i picked up when i was in vietnam and then I think about all these tunnels that we, you know, looking for Viet Cong and so that we we maneuvered and worked through and so forth on the Ho Chi Minh Trail or elsewhere. And I thought to myself, how did those people, they had to have the support of the people, men, women, and children to move up artillery to this high ground to attack the French air base that was in the wrong place in the valley. Uh, because, and they... And I saw where they did that in, in Laos. And I and then I saw again the tunnels uh, on the last trip in Vietnam. So how they provided the infrastructure and the support, they had to have the will to have a country to do that. It couldn't have been just one politician or two politicians. It couldn't have been just Ho Chi Minh. There had to be more, there had to be more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just looking at the history of, uh, you know, of colonialization, occupation, um, you know, go, dating, you know, well bef before the World War Two, and, you know, expelling the Japanese and then the French again, and then the U.S. comes in, uh, and then China after that, um, it was an extremely tumultuous time. And I, I agree with you, sir, my time there, I just really uh, enjoyed uh, just how serene everything was and the, the you know the assumption was that there was just going to be you know mental physical you know landscape scarring throughout but yet i was just so taken in by the landscape and the beauty um uh, of the country so you know thank you so much for sharing uh, those experiences and so um i know you're super busy and again thank you so much 
uh, for your generosity. I just have uh, one more question for you, sir. Um, you know, looking at this book, and now that you've had some time separated, you get some, you know, arm's distance from its publication, and it's on the shelves, and you're getting feedback. Um, what are some of your takeaways from writing the book? Um, and then not just what are your takeaways, what would you like your readers to take away from it as well? I take them, uh, I'd like to I'd like them to believe that, you know, we can live a life with purpose. Uh, and and we, with so much mental illness uh, in the world that we never talked about during the Vietnam War uh, out there and so many issues, um, uh, there's a lot to be thankful for. So the take the takeaway is just don't stop. Just yeah. continue trying to grow. Um, do what the Vietnamese, you know, as you point out, I point out, they don't spend a lot of time talking about how tough it was, you, uh, you know, in the, in those days, because maybe they don't know, but they're looking forward. And I think if you look forward, I want people to read the book and say, we can make a difference. And it doesn't have to be a lot of money. It doesn't have to be titles. It doesn't have to be a fancy job or fancy anything. Just we can make a difference by doing small things every day of our lives. I mean, and I'm not talking about giving a panhandler $2 or $5. You just, you can make a difference in people's lives. And um, by getting involved in, in good, 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 good causes, um, that's what I'd like them to take away. And the other message is you got to forgive. Mm -hmm. If you can't forgive, you're not going to go forward. There's a lot of anger in the world, especially, and I think working from home and all this stuff has caused, you know, it's it's harder to understand than, than when I first went to Plattsburgh, New York, like I told you, you know, to talk to that recruiter. I had all the freedom. I didn't have to worry. There was no such thing as working from home. Yeah, um, yeah I, uh, I wish I could remember where the quote came from, uh, but the uh, idea was, and I'm going to probably butcher the actual quote itself, but the uh, the idea was is that uh, holding on to a grudge or the lack of forgiveness is like you taking poison expecting the other person to die. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, it, just, it eats you up from the inside. You know, it's um, there's just there's too much. There's enough anger in the world. We need to, and you know, geopolitically, it's so difficult now. You got so many um, different factions. It's really hard to um, really hard to focus on things that are non-negative. You know, uh, go back to that trip to Vietnam. Those peaceful rice paddies. My wife and I watched a movie the other night because. It was about Vietnam, and this and the scenery was spectacular, and it just reminded me of the last time I was there. And I'd like to go back again because, so you see how one very very negative perception mm -hmm. had said, you know, in, in William Manchester's book Goodbye Darkness, he he spent his and I quoted in my book actually, um, he would never go back to Japan, and he called them Japs, and he was never going to call them anything else but Japs. So he gets on this plane, and guess what? There's Japanese flight attendants. And 
it's the long story of him mellowing. It goes back to Iwo Jima and these are the places that he was at. And it's it's a story of renewal. Mm-hmm. And so my trip back to Vietnam was one of renewal. And so the takeaway I want people to realize is that uh, we could do better to make a better society. And it doesn't have to be a lot that we individually can do, but we can do better. And accepting the status quo in this age of mental illness and um, so much more coming up, up that's available to people in, in terms of getting help and so forth, we, we, are, we can do better to make a better society. That's really the message. Well, sir, uh, we appreciate everything that you do to uh, to make things better for uh, those in need, um, and 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 for making us better for spending time with us, sir. I really, really appreciate it uh, sincerely. Um, where can we find you, sir? Where what, what's next for you? Uh, where can we sort of follow your? Okay. Yeah. So there's a book. I'm I'm going to put uh, this podcast on it. I've got a um, uh, email. What we give book.com all right sir well um we will definitely put that in our show description um and uh we'll definitely feature your book um but again thank you so much for taking the time for our listeners out there please check out what we give from marine marine to philanthropist a memoir by terry salomon so again this has been such a pleasure thank you so much for being with us and taking the time uh to uh spend uh to wedge us into your extremely busy schedule so again thank you thank you very much good talking to you have a good day sir scuttlebutt is a production of the marine corps association i am william truding but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.